Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This presentation is being pre-recorded for publication of Christogenia on Saturday, September 29th, 2018. Today we have the privilege and honor once again of speaking with Dr. Michael Hill, the president of the League of the South. I recently did a presentation here at Christogenia on the role of faith in a successful insurgency movement or community, which was actually inspired this past June at the National Conference of the League of the South <coughs> by one of the speakers, Jim O'Brien. I began that article with something that Dr. Michael Hill had said on social media which, if he doesn't mind my quoting him, was that in all successful movements there is a vanguard, both intellectual and physical, that must push hard against the established order by violating their taboos and sacred cows, sometimes shockingly, to show the people that oftentimes audacity is the first ingredient for success. We will continue Dr. Hill said, to be audacious and aggressive in our actions in real life and on the internet. A few days after writing that article and presenting it here, I found an article written by Dr. Hill himself titled The League and Theocracy, which expressed a few of the same concepts that I had in my own presentation. Today we have Dr. Hill with us, and I hope to discuss the ideals which are expressed in both articles. Dr. Michael Hill, thank you for joining me. Bill, it's always my pleasure, sir, to be with you. Uh, you're a good friend and compatriot, and I always enjoy your work, sir. Thank you, sir. The sentiments are likewise. Thank you. I, I had I had written that in if any specific group, movement, or community of people does not share a common philosophical foundation or religious foundation, it will not survive over the long term. Its members cannot strive harmoniously towards a common objective because their moral values, as well as their outcome expectations, will never be consistent among all members of the group. It'll just tear itself apart like a beast with many heads in one body. Well, I do agree with that. Um, and I, I think that we have to find as as Christians and you know the league the league has been a de facto uh, Christian organization since the beginning, uh, meaning that most of us are, indeed Christians, and that we base our worldview on Christian principles and precepts. Uh, that doesn't mean, obviously, that everybody in the League is a Christian, and it certainly doesn't mean that all the Christians necessarily agree uh, on every point of theology far from it. But uh, I do think uh, that there are some foundational aspects of this that, that we need to address, and we need to address them on a constant basis. And that is fundamentally that we need to believe in the same God, the same, what I like to call, triune uh, 
God uh, of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and we need to uh, to agree that the foundational uh, literature, uh, I guess you might say, for lack of a better word, is is His Word in in, in the Bible. And I think if we do that, we we've got a solid foundation, and we can move away from these silly notions like uh, Judeo-Christianity, uh, which uh, many of the modern churches, <laughs> I call them churches guardedly, uh, are pushing today. So, uh, you know, I think if we can do this, uh, we can uh, have a good foundation and a good start, and we may all never agree on every every uh, point of theology, uh, liturgy, things such as that, uh, but uh, if we can agree on the fundamental things, uh, who who God is, what it, what His characteristics are, and what His Word says, then I think we have a good uh, good foundation there. So, well, well, that's absolutely true, and and I'm I'm going to bring up something from my own experience at Christogenia. I, I have what is undoubtedly the most active Christian identity forum on the internet for ten years now. It, it's nothing compared to something like Stormfront, but it's exclusively Christian identity. And I realized a long time ago, through my years of study in the Gulag, that we were never, even identity Christians, never mind others, we were never going to agree on everything. But as long as we agreed on three basic principles, the fact that Jesus Christ is God, the fact and and we should keep his commandments and and the fact that christianity is a white man's religion and that we in order to survive must exclude both the jews and the other races that if we accept those basic concepts we should be able to get along as brethren in a community and and everything else every other um theological argument is only peripheral and and should never interfere with our fellowship well yes i I do agree with that Uh, those are some uh, you know basic fundamental building blocks that that we need to keep in mind and that we need to have within our community because um you know i've always believed that uh the the uh, well, I have to say I always haven't believed it, but I believed it for most of my adult life that uh, that the Word of God was given to a specific people for a sp- specific purpose, and that there is a reason that Europe, uh, in the Middle Ages, for instance, instance was called Christendom, and there is a reason that uh, the the gospel and the Word of God was brought uh, westward. Uh, into the area where uh, where our people uh, were found, and our people uh, had had hearts to accept uh, this truth of, of the gospel and and God's word in general. Uh, and I think that's a telling point. And I think we ignore something like that at our own peril. Um, and I think the white man has has uh, gone off track. Uh, in his theology here, uh, and I, I don't—I'm not a man to mince words—because uh, of Jew influence, uh, and I, I certainly am not on on a par with you, sir, to argue uh, the the his, historic historical aspects of this. But 
and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think beginning in somewhere around the 1830s or so, you had this, uh, this, the beginnings of this uh, great heresy uh, that became to be known as dispensationalism, and, and probably the most significant uh, uh, act of this movement was the publication of the Schofield Bible, which I think is probably the root of this poison called Judeo-Christianity, which has basically corrupted uh, our view of God's Word and who God's chosen people really are, and has led to all sorts of mischief, uh, and has, I think, led to a misidentification of Christianity as a type of universalist uh, religion it has become today. Uh, in, in other words, incorporating any, anybody and everybody and reducing the white man to just another another group uh, within within the uh, community of, of Christians, and I think that's a very dangerous thing because I think it, it goes against not only theology but I think it goes against history as well. Uh, so I'm in agreement with you about those things. Those are absolutely fundamental things, and if we do not uh, if we do not place emphasis correct emphasis on our genealogy, which the Bible, of course, does in both Old and New Testaments. Uh, and we do not in, uh, realize the importance of blood and, and our genes, then we are missing an extremely important part of what God is trying to tell us in his holy word. But, well, sir, this is Southern tradition. Uh, I mean, in the 19th century, white school children, north and south, learn to read from the Bible. Now, the That's interpretations right. weren't always the same, but they at least learned to read from their Bible. And, and in the early 1800s, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Missouri, North and South Carolina, and Virginia all had laws which prevented blacks or slaves from learning to read and write and punished anyone who held schools for them. Right. They couldn't read the Bible. They weren't. It, it was never the intention of the Old South to share its cultural traditions and its religious heritage with the Negro. In um. In the Old South, and and it was the spirit of the Confederacy that sought never to merge the Negro or the Indian, even when the Indians were allies with white Southern people and culture. Before the war between the states, as far back as 1691 and all through the 1830s, 1840s, every southern state had miscegenation laws. Oh, yes. Every southern state, including Kentucky, and if we want to count West Virginia after 1863, right, had banned miscegenation right. between whites and Negroes, every one of them. Now, to yep. this list, Missouri added Asians, I guess for some reason, and, and North Carolina and Tennessee, because of their um, peculiar problem with the Cherokee, who escaped the Trail of Tears, added Native Americans to the list. But Georgia, right. Texas, and Virginia banned miscegenation between whites and all non-whites, right. without exception. As recently as 1924, Virginia had made its miscegenation laws, or anti-miscegenation laws, even more strict with the Racial Integrity Act. 
which I was actually born under. It it wasn't um, right. deemed unconstitutional by the Empire until 1967. That act stayed in force and effect until 1967. That's right. Th- this is our heritage, and this was a white Christian heritage, and, and the people who upheld these laws were Christian people. Yes, they were. And and they had no Much. problem with this. Well, you know, 1967, that's, uh, that's just uh, right in the middle of all of the turmoil that was brought to the South and, you know, under the guise of something called the Civil Rights Movement or Revolution, uh, what we Southerners like to call the Second Reconstruction. But it was... Uh, to undermine the white South, the white Christian South specifically. And if you look at the roll call bill of of who came in from outside to foment this revolution, and it was a revolution, uh, you can find a healthy dose of Jews right there. Absolutely. uh, Pushing to undercut the foundations of southern white Christian civilization, and there is no doubt what their intent was, the destruction of, 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 of our civilization. And we see today uh, how effective that's been. Absolutely. And, and you had mentioned before um, Cyrus Schofield and dispensationalism. You, you were absolutely correct about that. I, but I could take Jewish influence, undo Jewish influences in Christianity all the way back to the 2nd century A.D., and especially from the 13th century AD, did converso Jews start to have a tremendous impact on the, the, the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. And Jews were always behind um, the, the Protestant Reformation only because they sought their own gain if the Protestants were successful. There's a whole lot of levels of infiltration and deception, but you are perfectly correct that in the 19th century, with the um, contrivance of dispensationalism, that's when Christians were taught, that's when this started, that Christians were taught to take a back seat to God's chosen people. being the Jew. And and Cyrus right. Schofield did a tremendous duty to the Jews in advancing that sort of dispensationalism from the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And it's absolute poison, what which has polluted every American Protestant church today and, and made white Christians slaves to these international Zionists. There's no doubt. No, no doubt about that, um, and that—that's why uh, I no longer attend an organized church. Is because about well, going on three years now. Three years ago, one of the—and I won't call the name of it—one of the, the most uh, so-called conservative traditionalist Protestant denominations, uh, of which I was trying as best I could to make my way in. Uh, they basically just crossed the line finally, and. Uh, and I just had to walk away from it. So uh, that's when I began. Well, actually, before that, I had begun to start looking very seriously at CI. 
and after that happened, uh, started looking at it uh, even even more uh, closely, and uh, I found some things in it that uh, harkened back to some of the things that I was taught as a as a boy about my society, which was a white Christian society that I found no other churches teaching. And it was very comforting to me because obviously this is what I was used to as a child growing up in the 1950s and, and the early 1960s. Um, but uh, also uh, the theological underpinnings of it uh, seemed to me to, to, to make perfect sense. So, you know, I, I see it uh, kind of as hearkening uh, a, a back to you know, a day in which the South was overtly and proudly uh, white and Christian and put the two things inextricably together. Uh, and, you know, those days are long gone, unfortunately, at least for the time being. Well, well right. And, and I don't want to force um, Christian identity on anyone especially on my brethren in a league, and of course I have no authority to do that, but I wouldn't want to do it even if I did have the authority. I wouldn't want to force Christian identity on anyone. And, and no, you, no. sir, have certainly expressed that very well in, in your article on the league and theocracy. But what, what I, here's um, what I'd like to get at with this, and, and one of the major points I think that's important for Southern Nationalists to understand if they are serious Southern Nationalists. You recently had informed League members that they should inform you or League leadership of their own memberships and outside organizations. And, and I think that, of course, it's very wise of you to look for conflicts of interest among our members to inform members who may be in conflict and, and to hope to see them resolve privately, what, which is right. your um, professed objective. But taking this same idea one step further, and I know this is controversial, it's a controversial matter for you, and, and I wouldn't blame you for not having as strong an opinion as I do, but I'm not the president, so I, could, I can get away with it, right? I'm not trying to tell anybody what to do, right? It, it's my well, own you speak, you speak your mind. It, it's my own opinion that whites must learn very quickly that if they desire to survive, that they cannot support any church organization that transfers to non-whites any white resources, white empathy, or anything else that belongs to whites. Southern nationalists who are true to the cause should take this concept even further and not give their resources or their allegiances to support any organization with interests outside of the South unless it is for the express purpose of furthering the Southern cause. Uh, I, would, uh, I would add one caveat to that, that we, we would consider helping uh, whites outside the South in emergency situations like South Africa. Uh, but, you know, in, in the long run, that, that, I think, does help the South as well. So, yes, sir. That helps um, the Southern cause, I believe. You're absolutely yeah, right. Uh, I agree. We should help whites. Yeah, absolutely. White Christians. Yes, I, I, think, I think white survival. And, look, let's face it, and I, I, I think that within the league, I, no matter 
you know, whether you're a Christian or not, or no matter what your Christian denomination is, I think there's a, a consensus agreement that there is a campaign, a very aggressive campaign of white genocide going on today, not just here, but worldwide. And I think that the consideration of, of what is good for white people in the South and outside the South uh, is paramount. Uh, and our particular emphasis, uh, since we are in the South and, and Southern, uh, has to be on our own people. Um, so, sir, I, I, would, uh, I would say that that has to be uh, up at the top of our list of concerns is that unity uh, unity of purpose uh, among our people uh, as a matter of survival, not not just as a matter of, of our own prosperity, but initially as a, as a matter of survival against a very powerful foe who seeks our destruction. So yes, I, I, I do agree that whatever we do, we need to link it to to this uh, idea that that everything that we do, including the allocation of our resources, has to be done in such a way that it benefits white Southerners, which is a little bit redundant because only Southerners can be white in my, my book. Negroes and others, they, they may live in the South, but they do not qualify as Southerners. Uh, so Southerners uh, must do this, and, and we must do it not only to help ourselves, but to help the general white population of the globe, our cousins and allies, as I like to call them. They're, they're not our immediate nuclear family, but they are our cousins and they are our allies in this fight. So everything that we do needs to be geared toward uh, uh, helping and promoting and saving our race from the, those who would destroy it. Well, well I agree, and, and I went so far in my recent talk, I, I even went beyond beyond that, if we're serious about ourselves, if we are serious Southern nationalists, engagement with the sins of the world must be terminated. And, and that means movies, sports, television, all these activities which draw our resources away from our own people. Money spent on those things, to me, is money given over to the enemy. You, you may as well just yeah, hand sure. your enemies your money. Anyone who spends sure. money on worldly entertainment, but also anyone who gives money to these church organizations who are sending these resources overseas, you're being a cuckold for, for these, <laughs> th these foreigners, in, in yeah, my opinion. Really. It, it's, it, yeah, it's, let, me, let me give you an example of something. I'm sure you're aware of this, and I'm sure most of the people who will be listening are aware of it, too. But it just always jumps out at me. Uh, and I heard this on, on the local radio station the other day, an advertisement for some group, some so-called Christian group, who was raising money to go to Africa to, to, to drill wells so that the Negroes in Africa could have clean water. Uh, now, you know, to most to most people that sounds like such a nice humanitarian gesture, you know. But what you know, what's happening here, and you know this as well as I do, sir, is that we're helping a people survive and thrive biologically, who is eventually going to overwhelm our homelands with their numbers. It's suicide to help those whose intent is to overwhelm you by a demographic uh, tidal wave, and I know I know that to most people out there, most altruistic whites, and and we are an altruistic people, but our altruism has been turned away 
from its natural recipients, that is our own people, to people that are not like ourselves who do not have our best interest at heart. So when you go to Africa or you contribute money to, to drill wells in Africa to give water to these little Negroes where they can grow up into big Negroes and come across the Mediterranean into Europe and overrun your ancient homeland, you are helping your people be destroyed. Yes, you are. So, yes, yes, sir. I mean, everything that you do with your resources like that, whether it's buying a movie ticket, buying a ticket to a sports sporting event, uh, whatever, uh, is basically helping out an enemy whose ultimate goal is your own destruction. So, yes, we have to rethink the allocation of our resources, where our altruism and charity should go. And the Bible is very clear about that. You know, uh, it begins at home. And that means with your own kith and kin, your own blood, your own gene pool. And we've gotten away from that, sir, and we've let the Jew, again, uh, trick us into using a very, very wonderful uh, I guess for for a lack of a better term, we call it an instinct, and that is to help other people. Uh, but, you know, it was designed, I believe, to help each other, meaning our own white people. Right. But um, we, have to, we have to be very careful about this, and uh, we haven't done a very good job of, of it because we've been able to be manipulated by guilt and... We just have we just have to toughen ourselves up, sir, and learn the truth about these things. Absolutely, and and going back to something you said earlier, that the apostles of Christ had one generation of missionary activity in Europe to create a Christian civilization in Europe. Right. The modern churches have been going to Africa for five hundred years, and still have not created a Christian civilization in Africa. Because no, and they never, will never do it. They will never do it, I agree. When I was a boy, and I've said this before, I, I was a boy, and even though I was born in Virginia to transplant parents, I was raised in New Jersey because that was where my father could get the most work. And, and um, I saw waves of blacks come up from the South in the 1960s and they all professed to be Protestants, Baptists, Methodists, whatever and in one generation the cities of the north were destroyed. They weren't Christians, they weren't Christians at all. Christians would never do that, white Christians would never do that. Waves, my own grandparents came dirt poor from Ireland. My, my, My father's mother came here dirt poor from Ireland and and she didn't destroy the town she lived in. <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> that they built things. They didn't destroy sure. things. It, it's that's right. It's incredible that we think these people should be Christian, and it's more incredible to me that a a, a God fearing Southern nationalist who should care for his own people would tithe these churches that are sending this money overseas and and even to Africa that's that that's you're not a real nationalist if you're doing that you're only playing nationalist that's all you, you're well, larping as they like to say in in my sir, humble sir, opinion. I, I can't disagree with you about that and I know I know a lot of people would probably say well gee I didn't realize my church was sending money 
to places like that. Well, that's your responsibility to know where your money's going. Right, and and to hold your your pastor accountable. Exactly. To me, extra income. Um, Tithes or, or anything like that made by Southern nationalists must be devoted exclusively to the cause of the South and and our people. Tithes should be That's made to right. the movement, or tithes should be made to those within the movement who are in need of them. But tithes can also, they don't have to be in money, they could be in time devoted to a task in services rendered, sure. rather than merely in money. You could help your, your white brother put a roof on his house, right? That There's no cause, there is no cause which has ever succeeded without great personal sacrifice of one sort or another made by the members of the cause for that cause. That's right. The, the there, there are no easy outs. There are no easy answers uh, other than that. But, you know, we uh, we encourage people to do that. Now, I, I, I use my own uh, situation as an example. Um, we we really stopped giving money to, to our church before we actually left the church, and that was probably a precursor to our actual physically leaving um, because we had some doubts about where it was going. But we started directing that money to needy uh, individuals and families in the league. And so that became our tithe, our uh, mission field for, for our money, as it were. And I felt very good about that because I knew who I was helping. I knew they were my people, and I knew they were actually in need. I knew exactly what it was going for. And we need to start doing that for each other. I would never now give a penny to one of these dens of iniquity that call themselves churches in America today uh, because I know that more than likely it's going to end up in the hands of someone who directly or indirectly is seeking our destruction. Uh, why would I want to fund that? You know, <laughs> It makes no sense when I've got people in the league that I know are needy for one reason or another, you know, they're down on their luck. Uh, uh, I don't believe in luck, but I, I, I say that as a, because I don't have anything else to replace it with. But you know what I mean. They're, they've had, you know, they've hit some hard times. Uh, and why shouldn't I help them uh, instead of giving my my money to some, you know, religious organization uh, that's going to spend it in Africa? Well, that, I mean, that's... it makes perfect sense. I said recently in a sermon titled, Why Do We Suffer?, that very often when we have needy brethren who are suffering from poverty or, or a lack of um, sustenance or whatever, that, that very often they're not punished because of some sin that they committed, but that's a trial for us as a community. It's a trial for us as a community because our God wants to see if we take our excess and feed our brother. There's That's examples right. of that in Scripture. There's admonishments to that in in the Epistle of James, for instance. So, so when when our brethren in the league or, or our white brethren in general are, are suffering. It advances our cause and it edifies our community to care for those people. 
That's right. That's where all of our tithes should be going. That's where all of our tithes should be going. Real white Christian and Southern nationalists should never put themselves under any foreign influence or they will always be subject to corruption. The churches, the apostles, originally left behind were all independent local churches. Christ being the only true authority above any particular bishop. I can understand the need many people have for regimen, for ritual that the Orthodox churches offer, and I don't fault them for that. But Christian nationalism in any country cannot survive if it is obedient to foreign powers. If we are to succeed, we cannot serve two masters. Our allegiance must be to God himself. To God himself. And what did Christ say? Keep my commandments and love one another. He who keeps my commandments loves one another. So we keep his commandments... And we show our love for those of our own kind. We that's love right. one our another. brothers and sisters. And, and that's all we have to do to be ideal Christians. Yeah, it's very simple. It's not easy to do, but it's, it's very simply laid out for us there. It's not a whole long list of, of things. Uh, two very simple things. Two things that are sometimes very hard for us to do, of course. Uh, but, uh, yes, that, that's... Uh, laid out uh, bl- very bluntly for us and it, it should be no mystery as to why we don't need to make that any more complicated uh, because if you do that I, I do believe that you're you're endangering uh, not only your civilization and your people but I think you're stepping away from God's word and in, endangering your faith in, in the same process so uh, obey God's word and, and, and uh, his law and, and love your people. That's pretty simple. And, and the only way to be true to our southern nationalist cause is to do that. I, I mean, if you want to be a Roman Catholic, fine. You, you know, one of the ideals that, that the original American Republic was founded on was the right of the individual to worship God according to his own conscience. Right. God is the Lord of the conscience. That's right. And even, um, I, I was kind of looking around the, the, the internet today, and I found the rebellion record, and Jefferson Davis, and, and a, a piece of literature, a speech, or whatever it was that he had written, I really didn't get into it um, deeply enough to see exactly what it was, but... This rebellion record, which was a collection of wartime writings compiled for the year 1861, records Jefferson David as having said that where there is a conflict between the law of God and the requirements of civil authorities, that we must obey God rather than men. The Southern yes. nationalists should not put themselves under the control of other men, especially men overseas. I don't care what office they hold. Jefferson Davis was citing the words of the Apostles of Christ, which are found in Acts chapter 5, who, who refused right. to submit themselves to the Pharisees of the temple, the orthodoxy of their time, 
they refused and chose the Word of God instead. That's what we must do if we are going to survive as a, as, as a viable nation or community of people hoping to have a nation. We have to do that. But we have to. Well, that's true. But that's that's right, Bill. Because I think I said in this this article on the League and Theocracy that uh, a government uh, whose code of law is firmly granted in the Bible uh, is a is a godly government. Uh, you know, Romans chapter thirteen tells us that all civil rulers are required to be God's ministers to do good for the people they serve, uh, and. You know that 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 means basically that uh, God's ministers are are your the people who whom you live among, and they're your people, and they are to look to God, and we are to look to God and His Word instead of man-made law and tradition to govern our society and our civilization. And if these if these men among us rule unfaithfully and tyrannic tyrannically. Uh, they're illegitimate, their decrees have no authority, they're covenant breakers, and they'll face the judgment reserved for all covenant breakers with God. But in the meantime, you know, we have every right and responsibility to put them aside and put men in their position uh, who will uh, look to the Word of God for the, as the foundation and origin of all laws, uh, civil laws, that, that govern our society. So ultimately all law is religious in nature uh, and and we need uh, we need to get back to an understanding of that yes we do and and if you read ancient inscriptions you, you will find that that the the Greek Solon the great Greek lawgiver claimed that his laws came from God or, or a God right, right? all of the right. ancient lawgivers claimed that their laws came from a God of one or another the the the, the founding concept of our Christian law it is the Hebrew law which preceded it, and, and those people weren't Jews, and that's a whole different story. But Yes, it is, sir, if you, I agree. <laughs> if you read that law, you'll find that it's a very anti-Jewish law. It's absolutely contrary to, to the nature of the Jew. It's a very moral right. law which resonates with our own nature, aside from a couple of the crazy sounding rituals like circumcision. This law is is a law based on and, and from which we derive our, our sense of justice and, and righteousness. And, and it's based on very moral principles. And, and the basic Ten Commandments encapsulate that law and and the commandment the 11th unspoken commandment which is basically the golden rule to love your neighbor as yourself to do good to others right. as that you wish them to do to you sure but the the um the the idea of law is that it it has this divine origin because it has a divine origin the law is immutable a man cannot change it because it came from god as that's right. You know, there has to be some ultimate standard of morality and ethics, and that's the basis of all law. And, you know, there can't be any principled action of any sort without an objective standard of truth, and that has to originate with God himself. You know, every system of law is grounded on the ultimate value found in that system, and that ultimate value 
is indeed the, the god of that particular system. So if you have a, a, a system that's based on man's law, man becomes the god. Uh, but if you have a system whereby God is the originator of the law, which even our, our uh, pre-Christian ancestors uh, recognized, imperfectly, of course, uh, then you have uh, your, your, your laws grounded firmly in a transcendent uh, God uh, who obviously uh, rules over man, and you, you, you have no basis for human tyranny when that happens. So it's a very valuable thing that our ancestors have recognized and given to us in this idea that all these laws are, are uh, originating in God himself. If we don't believe that all these laws originated in God, if we don't accept these laws, not only is there a basis for human tyranny, that there's a basis that, that will only lead to distrust of one another. It, it's, if I understand that you, sir, are um you pledge yourself to this god and and these laws and and you pledge yourself to keep these laws you profess this god and keep these laws i'm going to trust my wife my children my future in your hands i'm going to sure, stand absolutely. next to you and fight for the same objectives in 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 the survival of our southern people i'm going to be glad to do that because if i fall on the field of battle i know that you being a good christian man are going to look after my wife and and children make sure they're not taken as war booty and and or or raped by our compatriots that this if if i think a man is a a pagan who who and I'm not picking on pagans in particular, but if I think a man is a pagan who has no moral values, who doesn't um, respect my God, who doesn't care for his law, I'm not going to trust him with my wife or, or my daughter or my sons. We have no basis for community. Because no, you I have can't no trust fundamental him. reason of trust. Right. And and we could never build a community that way. No. We just can't. No, you can't do it. There has to be that fundamental belief in the origin of all that is good and right. Uh, otherwise, uh, you, you simply have chaos. You have uh, intellectual chaos. You have spiritual chaos. You have no ability to look in the eyes of the men on the battlefield that you're fighting with and know that if you fall, as you as you said, sir, that they will do what they should to take care of your uh, children, your wife, your inher- uh, your your property. Uh, there's there's simply no way that you can trust uh, going into battle with with people like that and putting your lives lives on the li- life on the line for them and they for you. So. It's all a matter of uh, of trust, actually, and uh, without it, and without the God from whom all this stems, uh, we have nothing. I would absolutely agree. And and these, um, I, I don't know that these people with these foreign allegiances. I, I don't want to. Con- I, I don't care if somebody wants to say that they're an orthodox christian as long as they're christian and and as long as they profess my god but 
if I'm a Bible-believing Christian who's willing to keep those commandments of Christ, it works the other way, too, that the, this Orthodox Christian should never condemn me. I don't, that, that's not nationalism. That leads back to the same divisions we've had in our race historically. The Irish had slaughtered each other for how many years, sir? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> sir, more, more years than I care to recall. I, I agree. And the, and the English before them, even one another. That's in, right. In, in, the, um, in, in the time of um, Bloody Mary and Elizabeth I, and and then yes. in the time of James the Second and Cromwell, and and they, that's right. But the Puritans had no problem butchering the, their own English brethren because they weren't Puritans. That's right. It, it's that's right. We've been doing this forever. Race cannot be the only bond. It has to be an agreement of faith as well. And and if we don't all have the same ideas ab about icons and, and rituals and things like that, we should still, as Christians, be able to overlook the minor differences in favor of the greater struggle that we as white Southerners have against the outside world. That's right, sir. And if we don't do that, we, do, we, 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 we don't do it at our peril because... You know, here, here's my, my personal position. You know, I don't, I don't like to quarrel and fight with other Christians. I, I don't mind disagreeing with them, gentlemanly. I don't mind arguing and, and discussing the finer points of theology with them. But as long as they believe in the same God I believe in, and believe in his word, and they don't have to believe in every single point of it, but the fundamental things, like we discussed earlier, I'm willing to overlook things. I, I, I pray that they will be willing to overlook things that they disagree with with me uh, for the greater good of our people and our broader Christian civilization because we do not have the luxury as white Christians of fighting among ourselves anymore, distracting ourselves with these internal struggles that we have with one another, over, over oftentimes things that uh, could be resolved, uh, you know, probably uh, with a friendly chat over you know, a beer for half an hour uh, face to face. We don't have the luxury uh, of doing that any longer because we are under siege, as, as again, as I'll say, by those who would like to see white genocide become a reality. I'm not saying, uh, in saying this, I'm not saying that our theological disagreements are, are not important to us. They can be very important. But they shouldn't be things that divide us to the point where we spend our time uh, fighting each other instead of fighting the true enemy uh, out there that is uh, besieging us on every quarter, from every quarter, and whose intent is clear. Again, our, our destruction, the destruction of our sublime civilization, uh, Christendom, or what remains of it. Um, so, you know, in the League, we've always had this idea that uh, we are a Christian organization in the sense that our worldview uh, is, is based on historic Christianity. We don't have any uh, denominational requirements or any test oaths or anything like that. But we uh, we do 
have an organization that is primarily Christian, and uh, proudly so. Uh, I thank God for it. But we do need to, to uh, you know, be a little bit patient with each other when we disagree. And uh, I, I think that uh, that will be pleasing to the God who created us and gave us this great uh, tradition of ours, this great faith, this this wonderful, marvelous word that, that should govern our our societies and our lives. Uh, and we, we just simply need to, to understand that every time that we devote our energy and our time to arguing with one another over, over these things, that we are distracting ourselves from the enemy at the gates. And he's determined to break those gates down and destroy everything within. Well, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, we're never, even the, 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 the staunchest identity Christians and the most studied identity Christians don't agree with one another on every oh, aspect of scripture and history. It's not possible. Sure. It, that there is we can always, no, ma- no matter what we identify ourselves as, you know, Roman Catholic, uh, Orthodox, uh, you know, Presbyterian, Methodist, uh, CI, whatever, we're always going to find something uh, to argue about, not just with each other, but with, with our, within our own particular groups. Uh, so we, I think we need to understand and be a little bit generous uh, to one another sometimes, more than we are, and realize that, uh, as I said, and I've said several times, that uh, we have bigger fish to fry here in the sense that we have a war uh, that's ongoing, that uh, we must fight and we must win in order to survive and prosper, and certainly for our future generations to be able to be here and call themselves Christian Southerners. Absolutely. And to win the war, we need to win the war. We're never going to win it unless all of us put our white Southern brethren first and put our um, denominational allegiances behind that, especially when they're foreign denominational allegiances. We have to put them behind our white Southern brethren and devote our time and resources to waging this war. And right now it's only a war for hearts and minds. Yeah. But it's it's going to be a shooting war before it's over. It's going to be a real war before it's over. I, it, I mean, yes. yes, it is. We believe that this government, this Babylonian economic system, will have to fall first, and that's our belief. That's an identity belief. But that's besides the point. When the time comes, it, it's going to be blood and soil or nothing. Uh, yes, that that is the only only means of standing against this globalist Babylon, as you pointed out. Civic nationalism, which uh, may as well just be some sort of leftist uh, position uh, in, in sheep's clothing, uh, is, is going to be revealed for what it is, and that is uh, terribly ineffective in the face of globalism. Uh, in fact, civic nationalists will probably become globalists before it's over. But the real true blood and soil nationalist uh, can find solace in the fact that there is justification for their position in God's holy word. And I think that will strengthen us when the time for 
the real conflict comes. And I think it will ultimately, those of us who adhere to that truth, and it is the, the most natural thing in the world for a man to be a blood and soil nationalist. It's what God has put in our heart as white men and women. And when we hearken to those things that God has called us to be, we will be warriors like the world has never seen, and we will win. I absolutely agree. Once we are on that same page, yes. ultimately, and, and we don't have to agree on all the details, but once we are on that same page, we'll, we will be undefeatable. I, I honestly so. believe that. We may not have victory for, for 100 years, but we won't be defeated. That's right. We won't be. And, you know, I, when, when, this, uh, when this coordinated attack against us as a people has, fi has finally been repulsed and our enemies defeated, then we can set about sorting out uh, who goes where and, uh, you know, who believes what. And we can have our theological arguments and discussions without worrying about them uh, detracting or distracting, rather, us from the task at hand, which is the survival uh, and well-being of our people. Uh, and I think that would be great, you know, if we didn't have, have anybody breathing down our neck, just to be able to sit around and have a, have a couple of drinks with uh, somebody from a different religious background, a Christian from a different background, and, uh, you know, have a nice discussion uh, of these things, and uh, everybody part as friends, but you know, unfortunately, we don't have the luxury of spending a whole lot of time on that right now. It's like we started out uh, by saying earlier today that there are a couple of things that, that we need to agree on, and that's the uh, supremacy and inerrancy of, of God's holy word and, and the uh, Godship of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fact that we as, as white men and women are, are brothers and the inheritors of that uh, of that great thing called Christendom. And if we can do those two things and put all our other differences aside here until we win this fight, then uh, I think we'll be doing what God uh, wishes us to do, and I think he'll smile on us and give us his favor. Otherwise, if we fight against each other because we don't agree on this particular aspect of theology or this particular aspect of the liturgy or whatever, then I think God will punish us uh, for being foolish and may let us lose. I, I, I perish the thought that we do, but uh, I don't think we ought to tempt, tempt him by uh, you know, engaging in things when there's certainly more important things to be done. And I'm not trying to say that people's idea of, of, of faith is not important, but as long as uh, you know, we're Christians and, and we agree on the fundamental things, the day for arguing the fine points is not now. Uh, it may be sometime in the future after this danger, this ex existential threat that we have uh, has been banished. But until then, my personal view on this, Bill, is going to be that if you're a Christian and you profess Christ as uh, God, Christ as, as your God and your Lord, and believe God's Word uh, and dedicate yourself to God's people, your people, then I'll work with you, sir. I'll work with you, uh, and we'll fight to the very last trench. The enemies are ours. Well, well that's absolutely true, and, and I would work with anybody willing to do that. 
if you love me, keep my commandments. And, and this is my commandment, that you love one another. You love your kindred. You love your brethren. And, and yes, it, it can be demonstrated in Scripture that that applies to kindred and brethren. Even the Apostle John said, he who loves his brother. So That's right. Well, we, we have this commandment, and, and if we fulfill this commandment to love one another and keep his moral, moral commandments, that then he promises to dwell with us. And if God is with us, who can be against us? That's well, right. If God is in our camp, we will win, sir. And that's, we need to make sure that we are worthy of him staying in our camp. Absolutely. And that's the only way that he gives us to do that. And, and I don't know how e even the staunchest Roman Catholic or Orthodox Christian ca can deny that right from John chapters 14 and 15 uh, and, and the first epistle of John. I don't know how they could deny that. And, yeah, and if, I, I, do believe, I do believe that our people believe these things. If they're Southern nationalists, they should be thrilled at this at, at this simple truth of Scripture. Absolutely, uh, love God and love your own people. I mean, that is a wonderful, wonderful uh, admonition. There, in, in my opinion, love love God and love your own people. I know a lot of men wow. that 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 have lived this naturally and have, have rarely or, or maybe hardly ever been to a church, but they're ideal mm -hmm. Christians. Yeah. They, they don't. They may right. not know it, but they're ideal Christians. Yes, exactly. And I think it's because God has put it in their hearts to be so. Absolutely, and and that was also a promise of, of Scripture. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, I I, I believe that's our only recipe for victory. I, I that that's. In, in all of my personal experience and, and reading, which is actually pretty vast, I don't want to brag, but it is, I, I, I don't see another path. Well, sir, I don't think there is another one. Uh, I think we could be looking uh, left and right, up and down, backwards and forwards all day long, and we would never find another path because it doesn't exist. That that's it, and it's it's uh, it's a as the Bible says, it's a narrow path, but it's a it's an, uh, a a distinct path. I mean, there's no mystery about it. It's simple and distinct. It may not be the easiest path to trod, but it's there for us. And all we have to do is, by the grace of God, walk it. Then we could turn all these negative arguments into a positive, edifying movement. That's right. Absolutely. Well, sir, thank you for being here. It's been a pleasure. It's always my pleasure, Bill. I, I, I don't really feel qualified to, to really discuss the theological matters uh, with a man as, as well-read and expert as you, but uh, it's always a pleasure, and I always learn uh, a, a good deal when I talk with you when we uh, do these podcasts and, and just have our other private conversations. So, sir, I guess what I'm saying is I... I appreciate being on your on your show here, and I appreciate your friendship, and appreciate uh, being able to talk to you and pick your brain about some of these things. Well, sir, thank you. That's humbling, and I hope to see you soon. God willing, we shall, sir. Praise Christ. Praise Christ. <laughs>